Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Today, we are talking to Jeff Smith, who was our guest last time. This is our second part of our interview with him. He has written a memoir, and the memoir is called Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. Jeff was a policy, public policy professor at the New School, and he also served in the Missouri Senate. He has a BA in Black Studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a master's and a PhD from Washington University. I encourage my listeners to hear part one of my interview with Jeff, where he speaks about his year in a federal prison. Welcome back, Jeff. It's good to be able to continue our discussion about the criminal justice system, a topic very close to my heart. Hey, it's good to be back, Harriet. Thanks so much for having me again. You're welcome. Let's let's talk um, today. Uh, let more uh, listen, I guess, to you read um, a, a little section of your book, and then I wanted to go into what it was like for you to come out of prison. Uh, so read us um, whatever you've selected from your book to give us uh, an idea of what it was like to be inside. Okay, let me read a little section from the uh, opening of my book. Okay. The first correctional officer had that I met had two visible teeth. I came in with a young black guy who mumbled and a Chinese guy who spoke broken English, but at least I could decipher their words. The CO was much harder to understand. Manchester, Kentucky's tucked in an Appalachian hollow, and he'd apparently never left. When he sauntered into the austere holding room and asked the Chinese man his name, the guy replied, Shoiming Chung? Sesame chicken? replied the CO, laughing uproariously and then repeating it twice as if it were the funniest thing he'd ever heard. He sent me to a heavyset nurse for a battery of questions. Hot and weight, she asked. Five foot six, 120, I said. She examined my slight frame and frowned. Education level? PhD. She shot me a skeptical look. Last profession? State senator. <laughs> well, I'll put it down if you want. If you want to play games, you can play games all you want. Fit right in right here. We got ones that think they're Jesus Christ. <laughs> Another guard escorted me to a bathroom without a door. He was morbidly obese and spoke gruffly in a thick Kentucky drawl. Strip, he commanded. I did. Turn around, he barked. I did. Now open up the prison wallet. I looked at him quizzically. Turn around and open up your damn butt cheeks. I did. He manhandled me roughly. All right, he's good to go. The last stop in the office was in the office of the counselor, a wiry, compact, sandy-haired man named Mr. Sims with a light blue polo-style shirt and a wispy mustache. He flipped through my pre-sentencing report, pausing briefly to absorb the case summary and shook his head. This is crazy, he said, quiet. he said quietly without looking at me. You shouldn't be here. Complete waste of time money, and space. A complete waste. Exactly. Finally, somebody agreed. But now, it was too late. 
That's great, Jeff. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask you, why Kentucky? Why did they send you there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in the federal system, uh, the Bureau of Prisons is, uh, unless there's an extraordinary circumstance, um, or then the Bureau of Prisons has to keep people within 500 miles of their home uh, because, you know, that it's seen as best practices to keep people as close to family, community support as possible. So that prison in Kentucky was like exactly 500 miles away mm. from my house. It might have been like 500 uh, and one miles or so. <laughs> so I think they put me as, uh, even though I requested to be at one of the closer federal prisons, they put me as far away as possible. What would what have what would have been closer? What prison? Uh, the Greenville one in in uh, Greenville, Illinois, I think would have been. Oh. The, the closest one. There were two or three other options that were closer. Okay. So Kentucky it was. Um, so I wanted also to go back for a moment to uh, your subtitle, uh, and you used the words um, America's prison crisis. What? How do you define America's prison crisis? Well, the fact that we incarcerate more people uh, than any nation in the history of the world, the fact that we've got 4% of the people in the world, but 25% of the world's inmates, so uh, six times more, you know, proportionally, um, the fact that even after, you know, 40 years of, of rising incarceration, we're just beginning to flatten the curve, but don't appear to have any broad uh, national strategy to get back to something approximating normalcy within other industrialized democracies. The fact that in Denmark or Sweden or any number of other countries, you have recidivism rates in the teens, whereas mm -hmm. in the United States, over 70% of people who leave prison are rearrested within five years of coming home. This kind of revolving door and these kinds of numbers are unprecedented in the scope of history. And yet we don't seem to have a coherent national plan to address them. That's no, no, we don't. No, we certainly don't. Um, all right. Let's let's talk a little bit about um, your time after you were released. What year was that? I was released at the end of 2010. Oh, 2010. All right. So that, oh boy, that's 10 years ago. Um, and your book was published in 2015, right? That's right. Yes. Right. So re-entry is a huge challenge for anyone who has spent time in prison, particularly those who are innocent and end up doing decades behind bars. I know a little bit about that as I've been an active volunteer with the Innocence Project of Florida for the last 11 years. Do you have any thoughts on the whole issue of wrongful conviction? You know, obviously we, uh, you know, especially in capital cases where the punishment can be irreversible, we've got uh, a big problem in this country. Um, the use of DNA evidence in recent years is encouraging. Uh, I know you've done a lot of work in this area, uh, Harriet, highlighting some of the injustices, as have people like the great Brian Stevenson, who's mm. uh, you know one of the one of the great civil rights leaders of, of our time. So, um, 
you know, the state of Illinois, I think, has freed 25 people off of death row, maybe even more by now, uh, due to exculpatory DNA evidence. And um, I think, you know, one thing we should do to prevent making these irreversible decisions in capital cases is we should abolish the death penalty nationally to make sure that if exculpatory DNA evidence ever does emerge in these cases, that people uh, are still alive to be free. Right. Absolutely. Funny you should mention Brian Stevenson. My sister just gave me uh, an article from The New Yorker written by Jeffrey Tubin about him, about Stevenson. And uh, it just I know so much about him. I've met him three times, uh, loved his book, loved the movie. And he he really is uh, a giant, an absolute giant of, of a man. Um, so interesting you should bring his name up. Um, did you get to know anyone in federal prison who maintained their innocence? And um, do you know of anyone who spent time in a state prison who was innocent? Um, contrary to popular belief, most prisoners don't go around saying that they were railroaded. Mm -hmm. Most prisoners will tell you exactly what they did. And in fact, some say that uh, they probably should have been um, they were lucky they didn't get caught for other things. So, um, no, I can't say that I know people who were wrongfully convicted. I see. Okay, so let, let's let address your re-entry experience, um, if you can tell us what that was like. Yeah, so when I came home from prison, I had advantages that 99.9% .9 of people that come out of prison in this country will never have. I had a home to go home to, right? Like I was able to put away money so that my mortgage could be paid while I was incarcerated. I had a family that, uh, of course, my mom was furious with me for what I did, but they were still there uh, if I needed them, um, my parents and my brother. I had a woman who stood by me. Uh, we weren't yet married, but, uh, but we are now. I had a PhD from one of the best universities in the country, Washington University. I had 300 people who wrote letters of support to the judge in my case, requesting clemency on my behalf, which is almost like having 300 letters of reference, right? If you're looking for a job, I'm white. In every regard, I was advantaged compared to most people coming home from prison. And you know what? I had a hard time finding a decent job. Hmm. I remember yeah, my yeah. first my first interview, I interviewed with a very small affordable housing nonprofit agency. And at the end of the interview, the vice chair of the board, she said, look, you got everything we're looking for in this position. You know how to raise money. You know how to build a grassroots organization. You know how to advocate on behalf of a cause. You know the procedure in Jeff City and you know the people. But why shouldn't we let another organization hire you now and we could hire you away from them in six months or a year once the aroma has begun to wear off a little bit? Oh, wow. So that's so, the question that I got. Imagine what most people coming out of prison without all the advantages that I had. Imagine what job interviews are like for them. Oh, easy, very easy to imagine because you just painted a scenario of yourself 
And there, there's just no comparison between you and the average person coming out. So as a result of not getting that job, what, what happened? Well, um, had I not gotten that job, is that what you're asking? What would have happened? No, no. They, they, they didn't hire you. Is that correct? No, they, they, they did hire me. Oh, they did hire you. Okay. They, they oh, did right. hire me. And in fact, 10 years later, I'm now the executive director of the organization. Oh, oh that's incredible. So, so you actually were pretty fortunate. Rather quickly, you were able to secure a job. What was the space of time between your actual release and starting work? Um, maybe a month. Oh, not much. So, and I'm sure there are people that look for months and probably years for a job that where they have a, a criminal record. Check the box, you know, I, that, right? I, I, I have been extremely blessed. Yes, you certainly have. So if we look at reentry, what reforms are needed to help people who are coming out of prison and cannot find work? What could so we the, do? So the first thing we got to do is we got to realize that by the time people get out, it's too late in a lot of cases. You need to spend the one luxury of being incarcerated is that you have a lot of time. So we should help people spend that time productively, help them do what they do in Denmark, do what they do in, in uh, Norway. By the minute you get in, having a case manager who works with you to say, hey, what can we do to make sure this never happens again? What kind of job would you like to have? What are you good at? Have you ever thought about computer programming? What about welding? What about working in a warehouse? Well, what do you think, what can we get you certified to do in a high demand occupation, occupation where there is job availability near where you're going back to that we can get you trained in over the next four years and come out of here, you know, saying, I've got three and a half years experience as a computer program. So that's what we don't do. And that's what probably more than anything else contributes to the far lower recidivism rates right. in those countries. So then once people get home, we've got to make sure that they have, you know, continuity of healthcare treatment. Uh, overdoses, people who right when they get out of prison the first month, are dozens times more likely to die of drug overdoses than your average person. So we got to make sure that they've got medication-assisted treatment to help them uh, adjust, you know, back to society and not let the pressures and anxiety of reentry uh, lead them to um, a, a mistake, especially those who have substance use disorder. We've got to provide housing uh, for people who are coming home or assist them uh, so that they have a stable, decent place to live. We've got to help with food insecurity um, so they're not hungry. Uh, there are so many different realms, whether it's healthcare, education, employment, um, hunger, you know, so many, you know, issues that plague folks who are coming home. And we've got to have the right behavior health treatment for yeah. such a high percentage of people who are incarcerated. They have, you know, different mental health disorders. And if those are not adequately addressed, which I can guarantee you in prison, they're typically not. Mm -hmm. uh, most people who come into prison already are suffering from trauma uh, due to adverse childhood experiences. And that right. trauma is exacerbated 
by the dehumanizing experiences of prison. And when that is exacerbated, it usually um, leads to more severe difficulties readjusting and successfully reentering society. So we have to have counseling and behavioral health treatment both in prison and upon reentry. I know something about prisons uh, in the Scandinavian countries and in Germany because I created a class that I teach in Florida called Justice Around the World. And I compared our prison system and all of the pieces of it to those in uh, the Scandinavian countries and in Germany particularly. And they they just outdistance us. And why... Why do you think that is, that those countries are so far ahead of us in just what you've described? And why are we lagging so far behind? Well, I think we've got a, just a cultural issue here in this country where we have long, and I'm talking about for centuries, viewed prison as a very, in a very punitive way. We, want to, we have sort of a vengeful strain in our culture. Whereas in some of those other cultures, it's more like, okay, you screwed up. How can we fix it? As opposed to you screwed up. How can we punish you? And, you know, there's a lot of things about prison, uh, not just the crappy food or the lack of, you know, educational opportunities or lack of meaningful counseling in most prisons. Uh, but, you know, the entire environment, and even in many places, the tolerance of sexual assault. And it's almost as if we want to use the horror of prisons as a deterrent to say, it's not bad enough that you have to go away from society for a long time. We want to make it so that you are so fearful of what could happen to you there that you won't commit a crime. And that's culturally a very different attitude than they have in Europe, uh, in most of Europe, where you know it's not the prisons or country clubs, but in many places in Europe, you go into a prison, you wear your own clothes. They don't take your clothes and mm. they don't your identity and call you a number they you bring a suitcase in you wear your clothes you keep your identity it's not completely stripping you of your dignity as well as your clothes of the minute you get in there because that obviously doesn't do anything good for you when you are just systematically dehumanized That's so true. i think you know just we need a i think cultural uh, uh just a shift in our view of what prisons are supposed to accomplish, they're not, they shouldn't primarily be about vengeance. They should primarily be about attempting rehabilitation as is successful in many other countries. Very, very true. Yeah. Um, I, I, that is very much what I uncovered that um, there's a film that Michael Moore made um, and he goes from country to country and takes you into the prisons, uh, Norway, Germany. And um, when you talk, when you hear him interview the guards, um, they say that uh, human dignity is number one on our list. So that's their attitude. So you come in with that attitude and that is the way you're treated and it's it's completely different here so i think uh, it, it becomes a whole change in your attitude uh, and that's very much what what you're saying this stripping of humanity um is is just uh it, it's degrading it really is um are there are there 
um, specific issues that you feel strongly about other than the many that you've already uh, mentioned? Um, what, what, would they, what would they be uh, in terms of our prison system? Any other issues? Yeah, I mean, I think we got to do better by our COs. As mm -hmm. long as COs make as little money as they do, it's not going to be a very attractive job. And as as uh, horrible as the experience of being incarcerated is, you know, COs get to go home, but they spend 40 or more hours of their life every week in a pretty miserable place. And if we improve salaries, training, educational opportunities uh, for COs, they would probably be better able to understand how traumatized most of the people they guard are and would probably treat them in a more humane way that would reduce the likelihood that people leave prison alienated and furious at the system and more damaged than they were when they went in. Right, right. Um, one of the things I recall from that film that Michael Moore did is the um, the COs were trained uh, for two years and they took psychology classes. That doesn't happen here. So they they were able to understand the people that they were responsible for. I think that's non-existent here, really. Um, what what is possible? <laughs> that's the the key word to do about these issues. Um, and I think about how close we are to the next election. What What is possible in terms of change uh, in our criminal justice system? So I'm actually pretty optimistic. I think a lot is possible, and here's why. Oh, great. Um, because as polarized, as polarized as the two parties are, criminal justice reform is like the one issue that people of both parties seem to agree on these days. Every, you know, most Democrats... Uh, approach this from the perspective of, hey, let's try to have a more humanitarian criminal justice system in many of the ways that we've talked about today. Um, although that may not be the natural instinct of all Republicans, Republicans of all different strains have compelling philosophical reasons to support criminal justice reform. If you are a evangelical Christian uh, Republican, then you will want to help save souls. And you will want to help reconnect most, you know, people in the lives of their children, which our current criminal justice system tears people away from their children uh, and for long periods of time and makes it more likely that the kids end up in prison eventually, too. And so you have a compelling reason to want to bridge that divide and, and, and reunite families. If you are a fiscal conservative Republican, you have compelling reasons not to want to spend 80 plus billion dollars a year locking people up. As I said in the last episode, uh, locking up a much higher percentage of our people than any other country in the history of the world. We have 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. And right. so if you're a fiscal conservative, like Rick Perry was when he was governor of Texas, or Nathan Deal when he was governor of Georgia, or Nikki Haley when she was governor of South Carolina, three conservative Southern Republican governors that all led the way on criminal justice reform to save money by closing prisons and getting people back in their communities. 
And if you're a libertarian Republican like a Rand Paul, then you don't want to see government uh, engaging in civil asset forfeiture and seizing all the assets of people who are suspected of having drugs and putting away people because they were selling a fistful of drugs for 15 years. That doesn't make any sense, these mandatory minimums and this huge, you know, encroaching view of government onto people's lives. Uh, you know, I think the decriminalization of marijuana in, in so many places is going to lead a trend towards, you know, 10, 15 years from now, decriminalization of most, if not all drugs. And so there's Republicans of all major philosophical strains of the party that are part of this criminal justice reform movement. And I think that's that's why I'm optimistic that we've got a chance uh, to go further in the coming years. That sounds good to me. What what We're almost out of time, and I wanted to ask you, what are your goals, your personal goals for yourself in the next, say, five years? You know, my life, I'm very blessed. I have, you know, I'm executive director of this statewide group that fights for affordable housing. We had a huge victory just today uh, here in Missouri by helping reinstate, uh, by getting the um, Missouri Housing Development Commission, which uh, operates under the, the gubernatorial administration to reinstate our state low-income housing tax credit program, about a $150 million program facilitating development of decent safe housing for, for people who are struggling. That was a huge win. Uh, then in other work, I, I consult for uh, several criminal justice reform organizations, some that work on policy, some that work directly people coming out of prison. And I just want to keep advancing their causes. I want to get more money for reentry in Missouri. I want to get. I want to encourage more employers to become second chance employers and take part in a second chance job fair that I help organize for St. Louis well, University sense. to employ That's people. That's There's wonderful. so much still to do, and I want to be well, being a part of it. Well, you sound like you are a part of it. Sounds wonderful to me, and it was great to have you on the uh, podcast today and last week. I thank you, Jeff, for spending your time with us. And I'm sure that people were enlightened by not just your experiences, but what you are doing today, where you are and where you're going. So thank you very, very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Harry. You take care. All right. And uh, please tune in next time to Pursuing Justice. We have some interesting guests coming up. I'm Harriet Hendel, and thanks for listening today. Thank you.